The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. Well, we're approaching the end of the year, and so... Today, we're going to take a look back at some of the bigger stories that came out of the Capitol this year. And to do that, we thought we would call in one of the big guns around Capitol coverage here in our area. Uh, Marisa Lagos of KQED is joining us today. And we're going to we're going to meld minds here today and 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 look back a little bit on on what came out of the Capitol this year. Marisa, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here with you all. Well, thank you for being here for sure. Well, there were no shortages of stories. There never are any shortages of big stories in in the California capital. So um, I don't know. I I think we were bandying about a little bit earlier. We're going to toss the ball to you first. What was maybe the one or two biggest stories you could think of uh, that we dealt with this year in the California capital? I mean, you got to start at the top, right? This has been a big year for the governor. I feel like it's not necessarily in the Capitol that it's been a, a big year for him. He's been playing nationally, internationally, went to China, went to Israel, just got off his debate with Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. Um, so, you know, I, I think critics would say he's not keeping his eye on the ball here at home. I, I might argue that I don't think it's hurting him politically in any way. Um But I think, you know, that is certainly one of the big California stories, especially given that just a couple of years ago he was on the ballot for a recall. Right. It's been kind of a wild ride. I mean, closer to home, I think labor seemed like one of the biggest winners this year in the state capitol. There was just so much attention on, you know, the suite of bills, most of which got signed by the governor, a few of which got vetoed. And to me, it really does sort of you know, mesh with the broader conversation we're having as a nation. You see, I think labor unions are the only institution whose actually uh, public opinion has gone up in recent years. Um, Bad news, guys. The media, they don't love us. But, you know, it, it really it really was this like, you know, hot labor summer into a hot labor fall. And it was not just the organizing happening on the ground or the strike in Hollywood. It was these huge wins um, in the Capitol. Well, certainly we saw the finally the passing of the unionization bill for staffers. That's been a, a union goal for quite a long time. That happened fascinating here. to be a fly on the wall in those negotiations. I just uh, would it no kidding. Would that not have been? Can you just imagine the stuff flying back and forth over that one? That that would have been because, you know, so much of it, too, is an outcropping. It goes back a long time and beyond just the actual unionization, you know, with some of the uh, we too or Me Too movement and the We Said Enough movement but has a, had a role in all of this. I mean, staff pay. There's just so many things that have led up into this. So it really was kind of a big crowning moment for something that's been building for a long time. And, and to, this was the year that it happened. Yeah, I mean, and it's fascinating, too, when you think about some of the personality dynamics here. Um, you know, you have... Lorena Gonzalez, former appropriations chair, leading the Cal Labor Federation. Um, I think it's fair to say I don't think she would take issue with my calling her a controversial personality. There's a lot of people who are very close to her and a lot of people who really don't like her who have worked with her. Um, And so I think that, you know, 
seeing someone like that go and and yet you know it's not you can't really say that the reason that a lot of these bills passed i mean it's no one person but also by the time you know they were ending the end of session we were seeing this transition happening with leadership and it's not um i don't think she's super close with the new assembly speaker so i don't know i'm always fascinated in the personalities that drive this stuff and it certainly seems like um i think you got to give a lot of credit to folks like tia or at sciu who have really kind of managed to thread some needles in terms of those personalities um and maybe bring some folks to the table who who might have been a little bit more dismissive yeah, she had a huge year. Um, we did a story, I guess, a few months ago, looking at the challenges she faced when she came in, and she just wiped everything clean. And this was her year. It was a huge year for SEIU and for Tia Ora and everyone, her team. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, people were just randomly like calling, you know, calling Rich and telling him, like, "Hey, you should talk about Tia Ora because she's a big deal." Like, you know, <laughs> just random like fan club calling in. Yeah, we did do a story on that this year because it, the the percentage, the ratio of their bills that they got through, I, I kind of felt like um, some of them were, were like what we call a heat check in basketball. It's like, we're just so hot. We're just going to throw it up from anywhere and see what happens, right? And those are the only mm-hmm. ones that didn't really get anywhere. Every, everything else, man, was was really big for them. So I agree with you. Labor, labor had a really big year uh, for absolute sure. Um, you know, I think some uh, another maybe going the other direction there were there were some of the dems this year that had tough years i think reggie jones sawyer had a really tough year as head of the uh, public safety committee in the assembly and we saw what happened you know anytime you get a new speaker you know there's going to be new assembly chairs and that kind of thing but that one was i think everybody knew the 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 new speaker's not in office a week and he's having to answer for stuff that was going on with the with the public safety committee and the governor weighed in and all of that kind of thing. And that became a big story around the country because everyone, you know, I think outside of California thinks we're all, you know, crazy, you know, <laughs> letting criminals roam the streets at will here kind of a thing. And that really fed into this national narrative about, about what California is like. And so that became a, re- a much bigger story than it probably uh, would have been in a different year. Well, and it was also the same uh, same committee with the child trafficking bill that had kind of got walked back and then brought back in. And, and yeah. fentanyl, yes, yeah. that was all that committee that seemed to be, you know, the the finger in the dike, so to speak. And it was a big deal. I mean, this is where it's going to be really interesting to see where a new speaker, how a new speaker plays, right? I mean, from the beginning, we saw, I think, a real... Um, different approach by Anthony Rendon, right? He was not this heavy handed sort of John Perez or going back even further, Willie Brown type kingmaker. He liked to defer a lot to his committee chairs. I mean, clearly he was happy to step in if something really got to a point. But I think that, you know, it's it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg with some of these. Like, was this was was John Sawyer leading or was he doing, you know, the bidding of the speaker? I, I, I don't I don't think you can always kind of disentangle all of that. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, his tough year, John Sawyer, is in part um, just the way the pendulum tends to swing around these big policy issues, right? We had decades of these tough on crime, lots of narratives about individual sort of sensationalistic criminal coverage coming into, you know, 10, 12 years ago, the Supreme Court order to 
reduce these populations and a real embracing of criminal justice reform. And I think a lot of the reformers like Joan Sawyer have been really reticent to acknowledge any problems with anything that they've done because they feel like it's a slippery slope. Um, and I think, you know, from an analytical perspective, it seems like politically Democrats maybe waited a little too long. I think they could have headed some of this off earlier if they had just seemed a little more willing to do some of these things. Um, and they didn't have to go super far, I don't even think, because I don't think a lot of the stuff they've done has gone that far to reverse the reforms. But, um, you know, I, I also think like, I don't know, some of this is generational. It's funny. Now we've talked about two guests we've had on our podcast, Political Breakdown, in the last few months, Tia Orr and Joan Sawyer. Um, you know, he really comes from, I think, a specific point of view, um, being a man of his age, a black man of his age, the experiences that he had over his lifetime clearly you know kevin mccarty the new um the new the new public safety chair is is coming from a different position politically but also just like in life experience um so yeah i'm i'm gonna be definitely keeping an eye on that and kind of how i mean i know we're looking back but i think it's going to be fascinating to see how they try to thread that needle because i don't think there's a huge appetite even among some of the moderate dems to fully you know go back to where we were coming out of the 90s on this criminal justice stuff. Uh, Marisa, I really, what were some of the issues maybe that were surprising? Was there anything that you saw this year that, uh, you know, you thought, oh, okay, I didn't see that one coming? Did you? Did, were there any of those this year that you can think of off the top of your head? I mean, it's a slow moving train, but I think the housing debate and what ended up happening between the trade unions and the carpenters and like this sort of complete win for the pro housing Yimby set was a little surprising to me. I thought that one would be one of the ones that might go down to the wire and it kind of ended in a whimper, not a bang, you know, like. I just feel like that is an issue that I'm continually surprised at how quickly the public narrative has swung. Speaking of pendulum swings, right? I mean, for so long, this idea of local control of sort of and, 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 and this interesting, you know, sort of Venn diagram of progressives who are worried about giving too much power to developers with, you know, NIMBYs who are just sort of worried about their own kind of little neighborhood or city um you you've just seen a real rebuke of that type of policy and you really see the state you know going after cities like san francisco where i live about their lack of building um and the fact that it's been led by a democrat like scott weiner and that they keep winning i mean to me i don't know man i just if you had told me 10 years ago that we'd be having this conversation i would have been like yeah right <laughs> Well, and I would say one of the parts of that discussion is the significant changes at the top at the building trades at, you know, the yeah. ECTC. Uh, you had Robbie Hunter, who was there running it with an iron fist and very effective. I mean, hard to think of any single person outside of elected office who was more effective in getting what he wanted than Robbie Hunter. And he stepped down, Andrew Meredith took over. And I don't think Andrew Meredith was there or much more than a year, maybe even less than a year. Uh, and, you know, he, I, I just think he just really didn't like doing, I don't really know the reason that he stepped down, but I think he was just ready to go on. So they went from being probably the key voice in that discussion, really, uh, as far as a non-elected person, and now have, have receded in that discussion. It's mm -hmm. been really interesting to watch. 
Yeah. And I think it gets to like an issue that is really I actually at the beginning of last year or this year, rather, had planned on doing some really big reporting, kind of explaining the schism, because I've been seeing it play out, honestly, in San Francisco for years. Right. I think there's a sense in the sort of broader public that labor is labor. And that's just not true. I mean, I mean, obviously, law enforcement unions have always played in a completely different kind of plane than public employee unions, but the building trades and, and sort of that whole, you know, not, not just the building trades union itself, but that whole um, part of the labor movement has, you know, always been a little apart, I would say from a lot of their, their labor brethren. And I think that seeing this, I mean, I had a hard time getting at the story because it's just a hard one to tell. A lot of what they're fighting over is so technical from, I think the point of view of the public that it's, it's challenging. It's super fascinating. And I think it's like going to be interesting to see how and if those two unions can sort of mend fences. Um, you know, in at the end of the day, you would hope that a lot of their interests are actually the same. But I think, you know, whether it's personalities or policy, it's been a real there's been a real divide and there's a lot of animus on both sides. Well, and that's uh you know, Danny Curtin runs the Carpenters Union, and that's exactly yeah. his point. He's saying we're quibbling over this much, and my finger is, you know, mm-hmm. a quarter of an inch away uh, for those not able to see us. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're quibbling over this tiny, tiny, tiny amount of actual jobs that would be impacted by the arguments. But uh, his argument is that the BCTC won't give in on those at all, uh, or that some, you know, some folks in the labor movement won't give in at all. And he's like, hey, I want more jobs. And maybe we'll lose a few jobs, but in the end, we'll get a lot more. Mm-hmm. And that was always his argument. And that was roundly rejected by, you know, Robbie Hunter. Uh, but I think in the end, that was that was definitely the direction the legislator, legislature went. You know, uh, the, Tip O'Neill very famously said that all politics are local. And it feels like in the last 10 years, things have gone exactly the opposite. And all politics are now national. Yeah. So, of course, there's rabid interest in Senator Dianne Feinstein. So when she when she passed away, of course, that's certainly been a big story this year. I mean, even though that is a, a federal seat, not a not a state seat, uh, clearly uh, a lot on the line there in control of the Senate. And so we've seen uh, a lot of attention there. And what you know, what would Governor Gavin Newsom do in terms of his appointment, et cetera? Would that person run for a full term, et cetera? Well, now we have all the answers to all that. But it was certainly big theater there for quite a while. Right. Oh my gosh. Like kind of feels like whiplash, <laughs> you know? Like it does feel like because you know, she'd been ill for so long and there was so much coverage of that and kind of what it could mean. Um and then, you know, the even though it had been a long time coming in some ways the sort of suddenness of her death and then the the appointment of somebody I think a lot of people, I mean, let's be let's let's call it Let's call it what it is. None of us saw LaFonza Butler coming, right? I mean, she, I don't think her name came up in any of the prediction stories. Um, and I was really, I was, I thought she would run. I mean, I, I, I I'm still I a little too. surprised, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, and then, you know, the Senate race, which is just like the typical, I mean, it's a hard one to cover because the truth is when you look at their voting records, there aren't huge differences, right? Between, the two front runners, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. There's a lot of personality differences and there are some nuanced differences. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying they're the same candidate or we'll do the same thing, but 
It is. Um, and then, yeah, now you got Steve Garvey in the race. We're going to be hearing uh, baseball metaphors at least until March. Um, if he ever <laughs> no. actually starts campaigning, the nearest we can well, tell, he hasn't right. done a damn thing to raise a dollar or to I know. speak <clears throat> or to do anything you know <laughs> I, this spring, is what training for him right now spring training yeah <laughs> but there's a, media at spring training tim at least <laughs> I, i'm not a sports guy i was i was trying so well you know that it's, there's that whole line about you know you you need to run for that they call it running for president for a reason someone needs to tell steve you know you actually have to run for the office you know it's yeah. not it's not a walk or a crawl to, to the campaign. Totally. Well, and then also, I mean, Barbara Lee was right out the gate was a significant name and she really is trailing. You know, I, th I think every poll I've seen has had her trailing the other two. Uh, and that sort of surprised me given that her name ID in California, I would feel is pretty good, but maybe, maybe that's because I'm older and with younger people, her name ID may not be as good as Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, who are on, you know, on the news and on media and social media all the time. Yeah. I mean, this is what's hard about running in California, right? It's just such a big state. And I mean, it's, an, it's a, you know, the, the question, like all politics are national now, I think in some ways is really borne out by this race. I mean, the reason Adam Schiff is so well known are because of the Trump impeachment inquiries. The reason Katie Porter is so well known because of her viral moments like in committee with these whiteboards. And I think the fact that she always had a lot of buzz sort of coming up as like an Elizabeth Warren protege beating somebody in, you know, a district that that was at that point still considered a pretty safe Republican district, or at least, you know, was not considered as purple and as much of a toss up as it is now. I think Lee, I feel like if, if this had been 20 years ago, Lee would have had a better chance when she was in the news for, you know, her vote against authorizing force in the shadow of 9-11. I, I think, you know, to play pundit here for a second i'm surprised i feel i mean i'm kind of like like we're saying where's garvey where's lee like I, I feel like right now with everything happening in israel and gaza this is a moment that she could really be kind of taking advantage of and i just i don't see it and i know you need money and it's this feedback loop it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if you don't have the buzz you don't get the money and then you can't be on tv but like even just in terms of events or you know I, I just I, I feel like she continues to kind of miss some some opportunities here um, and it's bearing out in the polling so far. Well, and I would say her biggest battle is that the one of the hurdles that Democrats face nationally is, you know, problems about the aged leadership. You have Nancy Pelosi, who is uh, what is she late 70s? And then you have Dianne Feinstein, who died of old age in office after a serious long-term decline. And then you have Joe Biden, who is uh, the oldest president we've ever had. And then you have Barbara Lee, who, if I'm not mistaken, would be 80 years old before she took office. Uh, so I think that that's a problem for younger voters in California who are looking at that, that lineup of Democratic leadership and thinking they want to do something different, even if they like Barbara Lee's politics and her personality and her stands, mm -hmm. they're not terrifically thrilled with the idea of, of voting for someone who is going to be 80 years old in, you know. Yeah, 
I think that's totally true. It's interesting too, um, covering, you know, Anna Eshu just announced that she's retiring. And so we have a Silicon Valley district here in the Bay Area that's up for grabs, which is a rarity, right? I mean, like the last time we had a real opening there was Ro Khanna, um, and who's who's endorsed um, Evan Lowe, who's running for the seat, who's only 40. And then you have Joe Samidian throwing his hat in the ring, who's 70. And I that, that just came up to me as I was sort of writing the initial just story, like, oh, these these are two of the contenders. It's like, how much does that play? Like, how much is this a moment where voters are eager for a new face, even if it's someone they may not know as well, compared to someone like Samidian, who's been a player in that area for decades? And I think, you know, I think this is where we get to, like, sometimes voters say things in polls or that they don't always, this doesn't always bear out in voting. I'm not saying, I I don't know. I've seen no polls in this race, but I would bet that a lot of the same people who are pulling their hair out about Biden's age would be happy to cast a vote for someone like Joe Samidian. Right. And like, he's not as, you know, it's a different position. He's clearly much younger, but like, if we're talking about new generations of leadership, is that really what people are considering? I mean, I I agree with you that that's a problem for Lee. I don't know that that is the reason that like, I, I just think, again, I just think she could have done more in the past few months to sort of grab the moment. And, and I think, you know, we talk about age, like look at the difference between the way people view Trump and Biden, even though they're only a few years apart. And so I feel like someone like Barbara Lee, who is super energetic, who comes off honestly younger than she is in a lot of ways, might be able to turn that into some votes. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I think on the other hand, like we have to be fair, like California is a tough state to campaign in. It's just expensive. Right. If you don't have a lot of name ID coming into this, you, you just introducing yourself to people is a challenge. And all of them have been stuck in D.C. I mean, this is where the Steve Garvey thing just makes you scratch your head. He could be running circles around them from a campaigning perspective. They they can't get out of D.C. Mike Johnson, McCarthy. I mean, the whole thing's been a mess. So, like, yeah, I, it's it's a uh, it's all a bit of a head scratcher. They should all hire me to run their campaigns. Wait, I don't want to. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned McCarthy, and there has been a oh my god, ending story, a big story for California, uh, which you know, continues now today when he, or, you know, this week when he's announced that he's not going to seek re-election, that he's stepping down at the end of the year, uh, or is it end of the month, end of the year, or both? Um, well, we don't know yet. That's part yeah. of it. He said end of the year, but he hasn't, he hasn't filed anything. He hasn't done anything to actually give a date or make it concrete. So it's, it's still an open question. He's just said what he said, but you know, that doesn't really mean a lot. You know, I, Maybe I'm the only one. I just want to see a podcast with John Boehner and Kevin McCarthy drinking wine and bitching about the caucus. Like, I just want to hear that. Just like, you know, like once a week, they just get together and just talk about like, ah. Well, if they do, uh, according to the L.A. Times, they'll probably be doing it at the Terranier Resort in Palos Verdes, where apparently Kevin McCarthy has spent, I guess, like hundreds of thousands of dollars out of his pack. I mean, 124 grand over two and a half years like you could buy a house in some parts of the state for that um anyway <laughs> or at least maybe other states <laughs> other states well um you know before we get too far off track i mean i think we'd also be remiss if we didn't mention you know this was a big year for mental health reform around the capital and yes. i mean i think there are those who would argue that you know the reforms 
how big they really are yet to be seen. But I think I think the comeback to that is, yeah, but moving the needle at all on any, especially on Lanterman Petra Short, has been a heavier lift than anybody's ever been able to do in the last 50 years. And so Susan Talamantis Eggman, uh, you know, in concert with uh, this year, this year with Roger Nilo, but and certainly others over the years, uh, finally got um, a reform bill through uh, the care court uh, thing is yet to be seen. But we're, we're actually I think mental health, the reality that mental health needs to be addressed, mental health reform yeah. needs to be addressed, <clears throat> um, really got through this year to lawmakers in a way that it hadn't in previous years. And to me, that was a pretty big story. I totally agree. I, I, it's, you know, it's uh, December, so I've forgotten everything that happened in, in September already, Rich. You have to forgive <laughs> me. Um, no, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think that this is another one like housing where we've really seen a sort of reversal of what policymakers are willing to do, the interest of the public in tackling it. Um, and And, you know, one thing that really does hearten me is the fact that we're now talking about these things as linked, right? We're not just talking about mental health and drug addiction and homelessness. Like they're completely separate problems because they're not. We can see that with our own eyes, you know? And I and I gotta give a shout out um to Dana Williamson, the governor's chief of staff, who sorry to keep plugging my own podcast, you guys, but um came on our show uh at the end of session and talked about her personal experience with her own husband having very, very serious mental health challenges. And I do think that this is where you see the importance of, you know, individual life experience, right? Like she had a front row seat to something and has helped translate that into policy. And I'm not saying the governor wouldn't have taken this up or you've got to give a lot of credit to folks like Susan Eggman and, you know, Sacramento Mayor Della Steinberg and others who have been kind of pushing this boulder for years. But having somebody with the tenacity, if you all know Dana, I mean, she's she's not one to take no for an answer, you know, in <laughs> in that type of position, it, it matters. And it matters because I think she had credibility with advocates who, you know, have a lot of valid civil liberties concerns and things like that. But it's not, you know, they weren't talking from 30,000 feet. They were talking from the ground level. And I think that reflects where the public is because we all have experience with this in our lives. We all know somebody, if not ourselves, who has struggled with mental illness, who has struggled with drug addiction, whose struggles may be linked, you know, the, that Venn diagram again. So every, every um, family, every family yeah. has, has seen this, everyone. Yeah, there's, there's and, no escape from it. Yeah, and, there's that. Which is what made it to me an, an, a really interesting ongoing story. And, you know, so I know it's one we've covered a lot. We've had a lot of we've had a lot of pieces this year dealing with um, the mental health and homelessness. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, you, you, whether it's at the local level or the state level or the national level, we're seeing a lot of attention being paid to housing, as we were mentioning, but the effect it has on homelessness. I mean, yeah. it's an easy narrative for some to say, well, you know, it's the mental health problems that that have increased homelessness in this state. And, you know, there's some truth to that. But the reality is this is an incredibly expensive state to live in. Housing in this state is absurd. And there's a lot of folks on the street simply because they cannot afford to be housed. And so I think um, the, the marriage of those two together has has, has been necessary because the, both both things can be true. Mental health, you know, affordability, all leading to the same 
exit door onto the street. And so I think I think it's it was a, a reason it was a big deal this year. You can no longer turn your eyes away and pretend you didn't see it. I mean, walk by any city hall, walk down any any major street in any any major city in America. I mean, I, I've been in Portland and Seattle a few times in the last few years, and it's just mind boggling, especially downtown Seattle. You're just it, it is you think how Sacramento is bad. I mean, downtown Seattle is mind-boggling how how much homelessness there is there. So I think that 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 is an issue that I would not be surprised, even with a sixty-eight billion dollar budget deficit, uh, is gonna stay front and center this coming year because everybody's gotta, you know, everyone wants to take their kids to a park or everyone wants to walk down a street and it impacts everybody every day. Right. This this situation. So well, not just and we're going to have an opportunity to weigh in on it. Right. I mean, there's this huge bond measure that the governor is championing. And right. I think there's some poll numbers out this week showing that folks are ready to embrace that. I mean, I think that, yes. again, this is a rare bipartisan sort of issue. Not everybody. I'm not saying those parties agree on all the solutions, but I think that there is a willingness to spend on this because it, to your point, it's so visible. It's so literally close to home for so many of us. And I mean, it just makes sense. Like how, if you're struggling with mental illness or drug addiction, how on earth can you get better if you're not even housed? I mean, it's just, it is, it, it, it just boggles the mind that in some ways that we haven't well, it was a study that came out not that long ago that surprised me, but a lot of people fell into drug addiction and alcoholism on the street because it was a way of dealing with being on the street. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, and, and it makes sense. And it is interesting because I was in Europe earlier this year and I went to about four or five countries over the course of a few weeks. And it took me a few days to figure out what was so weird. And it was, it finally hit me. I'm not seeing any homeless people. Mm -hmm. Like I was in major, major cities uh, across Europe. And I think in two weeks, I might've seen, I'm being really gross overstating maybe 25 people that I would think might have been homeless, but there were no camps. I mean, I'm sure they were there somewhere, but nothing like what we see yeah. here. And it hit me like, this is a solvable problem. This is not an intractable thing that, that has no solution. They've solved it. It has been solved in other places. We need to solve it. And, uh, you know, this is, I think, a first step. We'll see where it goes. But I mean, this is the first really positive move I've seen in like the last or significant positive move I've seen in the last 10, 20 years in any case. Yeah. Well, before we wrap this up, we talked about a little bit, of course, what we maybe expect to see next year. Now, of course, we've gone from 100, you know, what was it a hundred billion dollar uh, surplus to a sixty billion dollar deficit? Um, that went fast, right? <laughs> um, I mean, clearly the budget's going to dominate, uh, certainly at least the first part of the year. But uh, aside from the budget, what do you what do you think's going to be one of the some of the big issues that we're all following closely in twenty twenty four? Oh well, there might be this election happening that could decide the future of democracy. So. I feel like there'll be a lot of attention on that. Um, sorry, not to be glib, but I, it's just so hard to like think about, you know, I don't want to call them petty fights, but like, let's be clear, like Democrats dominate in SAC. It's like shades of blue, right? So the fights they're going to have, I mean, sure. It, I mean, the budget is going to be super intense. I am sure we'll see, you know, some bills that died this year come back. 
but it's an election year. It's a presidential election year. We're picking, you know, a U.S. senator for the first time. And well, I know it's not the first time in my lifetime as a voting adult, but it kind of feels like it after the coronation of Kamala Harris, that this is the first time we've had an open Senate seat. Um, And then there's some huge ballot measures. And I I really do think a lot of attention, like I'll I'll just pick two that that I'll be following and that I think are going to be some of the biggest headlines of the year. I think we're going to see, you know, we talked about public safety. I think we're going to see a lot of conversations and potentially a ballot measure around stuff like uh, shoplifting and 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 drug possession. Um, there's already, you know, an attempt on the outside of the legislature to run something on the ballot by the retailers and the DAs to kind of roll back parts of 47, that proposition from 2014. I think given the new uh, public safety chair, some of those conversations may actually happen inside the legislature first. Um, and then there's this business uh, roundtable ballot measure that um, has basically, I don't even want to say just Democrats, because I'm really fascinated to see how this plays on the local level with, you know, more conservative boards of supervisors and city councils. Um, there's a lot, I, I think there's a lot of concern about this um, because it would not just make it so much harder to raise taxes and fees in the future, but retroactively come back and, and, and you know, make some of those go away that are already being budgeted and at a time with a huge state budget deficit. So I think that will get a lot of oxygen um, and we're seeing court fights kind of play out already. And then that all leads to the possibility, whether it's criminal justice, taxes, anything else that pops up, that these conversations will actually happen in the legislature because of all the changes we've had to our initiative process that essentially gives more power to both you know, proponents to pull things off the ballot. I mean, we've seen this again and again, like, right, with the retail, um, you know, with, with fast food industry, really these outside interest groups using <laughs> what is often seen as as pretty, you know, draconian proposals to put on the ballot as kind of leverage to get the Democratic legislature to the table and the governor. And oh. I think we're going to see that again. Recycling, SB 54, yeah. I mean, if it hadn't been for the ballot measure qualifying, it, that that would probably not have made it again. We saw it with data privacy. Uh, we got the, I don't remember the bill number, but we got the data privacy, the California Consumer Protection Act because of a of a ballot measure that was, uh, that would have, have been okayed for the ballot that, you know, was scaring the hell out of everybody. So yes, that's absolutely a norm. I, and I will say too, you know, previous to, the, to, to being here at Capitol Weekly, I spent 20 years uh, covering pretty much all the legislatures around the country and looking in trends. And, and and I will agree with you, election years, red, blue, purple, it did not matter. Whatever the whatever the makeup of the legislature was, election years could be dead because <laughs> nobody wants to be on the record doing anything during an election year. <laughs> so we, it might actually be a fairly, I, I would never say boring, but it may well, be. Well, the budget's like, the budget will suck up all the oxygen. Oh, but yeah, 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 I agree with you. Um, we probably won't have these sort of sweeping kind of policy, you know, because especially when you have so many lawmakers running themselves. Yeah. Right. And and you're not going to see some of the, you know, really particularly tailored bills. I think, I don't know, maybe this is not the best example, but I think I think of SB 403, Aisha Wobb's bill on caste discrimination. And I mean, I think there, I, again, maybe that's not the best example, but there's examples uh, like that that are that, you know, ha- are really tailored more 
not to as wide an audience as as maybe a, a education bill or something would be. You know, right. just, there's not going to be oxygen for those things. They're not even going to get out of committees this yeah. coming year because nobody wants to to deal with that. They have other fish to fry. Agreed. Well, with that, uh, Marisa, thank you so much. Uh, you are more than welcome to stick around for our next segment, which is called "Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics." We understand if you don't have the time. I got yeah, I gotta go tape my show. But thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun, and I would love to do it again sometime. Oh, consider it an open invitation. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, I'm assuming the most of our listeners are probably very, very familiar with Political Breakdown and with KQED's uh, Capital and other California coverage. It is stellar, and that's the, one of the reasons why we reached out to Marisa for this, because we knew she would be uh, a perfect person to, to kind of look at all these issues. If you're not already listening regularly, you should be. So it's like it's an essential Just- and by the one, way, one, two, you back. listen to Capital Weekly, then you listen to Political Breakdown. You can yeah, you, you get all you, your news. Dana Williamson doesn't even call us back. So let's just put that on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We, we, we will give you kudos. I'm going to make an open appeal. Uh, Ms. Williamson, call us back. Call me. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> I'm going to say no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, so. guys. Take care. Bye. All right. Well, thanks again to uh, Marisa Lagos of KQED for joining us to talk about uh, some of the big news that came out of the California Capitol this year and what we might look forward to next year. Uh, But of course, now it is time for our favorite segment of the show every week. Who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Um, Some weeks are slower than others. Um... This week, though, we have a real doozy for you, don't we, Tim? I think so. This this week is the week where I feel like we have like a Florida level uh, worst week. <laughs> yes, true. We have uh, we have our own person of Florida man. Exactly. This is like uh, except it's uh, Tuolumne County man, uh, and it's Tuolumne County man who is a school board member in the Bellevue Elementary School District in Tuolumne County has gotten, he's had a restraining order taken out against him uh, for sending threatening emails, which are really are disturbing from the quotes. Uh, You know, he apparently believes he is the Messiah and he read in quote unquote, read in revelations that he was going to be the executioner for God and kill your children. Uh, And this, by the way, is courtesy of California County News uh, published by Grassroots Lab. They're always good for, for following up on these kind of things, but yeah, this is really not how you want your week to go. If your your emails uh, showing that you're threatening to kill children go public, and then the agency gets a restraining order against you, not a great week. Yeah, yeah. When when your school district has to take legal action to prevent you from showing up when you're when you're actually a trustee of the board, that's pretty bad. So hard hard to think of anyone uh, who's had a worse week than that for sure this week and we'll just cross our fingers hope that it was talk and that nothing bad happens or or whatever might have inspired him to make those comments be it natural or organic or pharmaceutical that he uh, does not act on those impulses and maybe get some help because you're threatening school kids in any way shape or form but i will say here right here in my own in my own neighborhood uh we saw where the our local library had a lawsuit filed against it this week by the Moms for Liberty group for uh, 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 stifling free speech. So 
Uh, our local library here, the Davis uh, Community Library, Mary Mary Stevens Library here in Davis, has dealt with bomb threats, multiple bomb threats this year. Um, had to be evacuated a couple different times, uh, and now this this lawsuit by one of the groups that seems to have uh, inspired some of the folks to make those threats. So it's you know they're they're not having a great week either. Um, but I but I do think the school board in Tuolumne has has got the crown. You know who is having a great week? Former congressional speaker Kevin McCarthy <laughs> finally said, "To hell with it, I'm out," and tendered his resignation. Although I think he has not officially filed the paperwork, but he's leaving. Finally, you know, we, he's been our worst weaker so many times over the over the year last year, and I have to say this time, you know, he's just done. He's going to go do whatever he's going to do, and he's not going to have to deal with us or anyone else pretty soon he just go if he like if he wants to he can go just sit on his porch i think the worst uh, decision or conundrum facing kevin mccarthy now will be what to do with that massive war chest that he has accumulated because if he's not going to run for office again um and you know i know there was some speculation right out out of the shoot that that you know he would run for governor here in california and i saw where jim Brulty. I love. I, I'm. I'm going to paraphrase because I won't swear this was exactly Brulte's quote, but he said he, Kevin McCarthy would not run for governor because he he's not Don Quixote, and I love that. I mean that that's a, such a Jim Brulte thing to say, and I I love that. So yeah, maybe maybe McCarthy's having a having a pretty good week for a change, and we we don't we don't have to put him at the top of our list of worst week this week. No, we could we can enjoy this week with him. Yes, absolutely. Well. Tim, as always, it was a lot of fun, and uh, let's we'll, we'll watch what this week brings, and we'll see everybody next time. Hey, and a reminder out there, if you were listening, uh, don't forget to subscribe, and also subscribe to KQD's Political Breakdown, a phenomenal show. Uh, but also, if you, uh, if you like today's show, uh, go wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Um, you know, that helps other people discover it. And, you know, algorithms are real. I think you, Rich had said before. And so, uh, you know, a positive view helps, helps this show up for more people out there. Absolutely. Yes. And thank you for reminding me, Tim, we should always remind everybody, please do that. It really does help other people find the show. So, and we would love you, uh, you know, with all our hearts, if you did that for us. So um, yeah, please go, go subscribe and, and write us a nice review. All right. Thanks, Rich. We'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California.